From PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and Sandberg Media, LLC, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. I wanted to use the scripture that has been used to literally and metaphorically collaborate with the creativity and open it up in a way that would be inviting, hopefully encouraging for queer folks like me to approach the scripture different as a resource and really as a as an agent in interpreting the stand parables of Jesus for our community, for ourselves. Things Not Seen is made possible in part through the generosity of our Patreon supporters. If you'd like to join them, please go to patreon.com slash notseenradio. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash notseenradio. Thank you. Welcome to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Today we're speaking with Rolf Nolasco. He's Reuben P. Job Professor of Spiritual Formation and Pastoral Theology at Garrett Evangelical Theological Seminary in Evanston, Illinois. He identifies as a queer person of color whose country of origin is the Philippines. Professor Nolasco works at the intersection of critical and liberative psychology, theology, spirituality, and affective neuroscience to address the complexity of the human condition and the potential for human flourishing. He's the author of The Contemplative Counselor, A Way of Being, Compassionate Presence, a Radical Response to Human Sufferings, and God's Beloved Queer. He lives in Evanston, Illinois. Today we're talking about his recent book, Hearts Ablaze, Parables for the Queer Soul. Professor Rolf Nolasco, welcome to Things Not Seen. Good morning, David, and thank you for being in this conversation with you today. Well, so I'm very excited by this book because it really brought together for me some things that I've been thinking about, that I've been suspecting, but really haven't had the language for and I wonder if you, as a way of setting the table for our listeners, could you talk about how this particular book came into being? What was the thought process that you and your editors went through where you said this book should exist? And in particular, how is it an extension of some of the arguments that you were making in your previous book, God's Beloved Queer? Yeah, wow, right out in this book. So it was a lived experience first, and then and I'm 65 years old. And so I've been thinking about, reflecting, struggling emotionally, talking to people about what it's like to be not just a queer person, but a queer person of color who grew up in an evangelical church. And I really wanted to spend some time reflecting on that. And so it's very personal. And yet it's also very theoretical, conceptual because of my interest in interdisciplinary work. With regards to how this builds on the other book, the other book, God's Beloved Queer, is it's not an apologetic take on this issue. But I wanted to use the scripture that has been used to literally and metaphorically collaborate the creativity and open it up in a way that would be inviting, hopefully, encouraging for queer folks like me to approach this picture different as a resource and really as a as an agent in interpreting the stand parables of Jesus for our community, for ourselves. 
So it's an extension of the previous book in a way that is very focused, but also as a way of almost like turning the tables around and making the very tool that has been used to arm us as a, as a resource for our own flourishing as a clear person and as a community. There's so much in that answer that I want to dive into and ask you more about. But the first thing that really jumped out to me was you were talking about this notion of embodiment. You said that you're embodying a lived experience as a kind of ground for this book. And that in that process of living, you wanted this book to embody struggle and hope. I wonder if you would take a moment and talk to my listeners about what this term embodiment means to you. How do you understand that term? Wow. It's, so I grew up in Philippi, so and I grew up in a Methodist church and, and been exposed to theologies that are really hard soul. And so I'm, I stay on the pews, attend Bible studies, and attend that Sunday school. I hear these messages, and these messages are not floating words. They actually get internalized. And, and so part of that process is me feeling ashamed of who I am because of these messages. And so these are words that are turned into some really affective moments and experiences that are, in some ways, that I'm beginning to almost like live out or live into. And so my emotions, my thoughts, the way I navigate spaces, uh, the way I hang with people, talk to people, they're all are shaped by the discourse of human sexuality, particularly around queer realities. And so I, I lived it. I, um, I thought about it. I feel it. And so my book really is almost like an extrapolation, making explicit what has been implicit in my life and really giving voice to these experiences, thoughts, and emotions. And they're very real. Because I carry these experiences with me everywhere because that has been part of my history, my story, my experience. Let me take just a moment and reintroduce you. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today to Dr. Ralph Nolasco. He's Reuben P. Job Professor of Spiritual Formation and Pastoral Theology at Garrett Evangelical Theological Seminary in Evanston, Illinois. Today we're talking about his recent book, Hearts Ablaze, Parables for the Queer Soul. Thank you for beginning to sort of dig into this notion of of embodiment, and I really want my listeners to understand how this operates in your book, Hearts Ablaze, because when we talk about embodiment, I think sometimes, particularly Americans, can fall into a real reflex of we're talking about something individual, we're talking about a very kind of personal and subjective experience, but one of the things that you do at a couple points in your book, Hearts Ablaze, is you say, This embodiment is not just an individual experience, but it also reflects a relationship to a community. You're never embodied alone. And I wonder if you could talk about that dynamic a little bit as we're setting the table for the conversation. And thank you. And I think what has helped me frame my book in that way is my interest in social neuroscience and affective neuroscience and that we all have social brains and that we all are impacting each other directly and indirectly. And so my own experience as a queer person of color did not happen in isolation. It happened within the context of community, with networks of relationships, with occupational spaces that I inhabit. And, and because we are relational beings, we do are, are shaping and being shaped by one another, particularly 
knowing the fact that I entered into this world with already established notion of what it means to be human and what it means to be sexual beings. That's already in some ways set up for me before I even entered the world. And so the conversation was already happening before I knew it was already happening. But it was already impacting my way of being, my way of thinking, the way I feel about, the, about myself and, and, and the world. And so I, I live in this matrix of reality that really is very significant in terms of shaping who I am and who I, I'm becoming. Well, and I love your phrase, the matrix of realities there, because that really begins to ground what you're doing in this book, Hearts Ablaze. Because when we're talking about the kind of way that we are social beings, one of the primary ways that we encounter that, that we mediate that, is through stories. And you mentioned a moment ago that even before you were born, there were structures that you were being born into. And those structures are related to you oftentimes I mean, if you think about children's stories in kind of structural parables where right and wrong are given kind of animal shapes, and then as we get older and as, as we come into a church discourse, we encounter these stories that Jesus told in the New Testament. And so I wonder if you can tell us a little bit about how you entered this project thinking about the power of story and the possibility of story. Stories are evolving. They are continuing to be written be constructed, even with the ship. And I intentionally chose the parables of Jesus because the parable itself is an opening for a variety of interpretation. And I get to play with it. I get to really situate myself in the parables as a pure positive color. Not just reading it, but actually interpreting it. And I think that is the beauty of stories. The stories that we live by, I think, is a book that I read when I was in school at Fuller. And so how my way of being in the world is shaped by the stories that I've inherited. But now I get to re-script, rewrite the story that is more encouraging, that really appends to my potential for flourishing and of the queer community in particular. And, and it's an open-ended enterprise. That story is open-ended as well. And we are being invited to co-author this wonderful story that is mysterious, but also accessible at the same time, that we can see glimpses of it, but also can live within it. And I think that is why I'm so drawn to the stories, particularly the parables that I've used in writing this book. I, I really like that answer, and I will say I'm in profound agreement with the thesis that you just laid out about this notion of rescripting, rewriting, co-authoring these stories. But I imagine that there are going to be some listeners out there who've grown up in a different way of hearing parables and hearing things from the Bible. And let's classify that, hopefully without caricaturing it, as there's a right answer here. And the whole point of going into the originary languages, the whole point of even discussing this, is simply to get at the one unitary meaning that is unchanging and timeless. And as we're moving towards our first break, I wonder if you would just address the concerns of that kind of listener. How would you say to them, there's another way of doing this without necessarily pulling the rug entirely out from under them? I'm a therapist, and so I also try to, in some ways, go back to your own lived experience and your own story uh, that you're living into. And so my encouragement is 
pay attention to their own lead story and how that actually is changing in some ways. They're not stuck in one spread. So long as you're alive, stories are being written for you. And you also have the capacity to write your own story. And so my encouragement is to pay attention to the storied nature of their human existence, of their lived realities. Pay attention to that. And ask themselves questions, how God has been present in my life throughout this journey that I'm on, throughout this story that I'm writing that being And really focus on that first and really have a good grasp of the storied nature of our existence and that how that is opened up, that we are invited to go author that. So that when they turn attention to the story that has been deemed as natural, that there is only one story, they can begin to almost like question and interrogate that assumption that there is only one meta-narrative. So, so their lived experience is in some ways now in conflict or in conversation with this message that there is only one meta-narrative. And that, and that tension can actually create an opening for them to kind of wonder, okay, maybe this will encourage me to begin to question the stories that I've been told as the only story that I should live out and tell other people about. So, so hopefully the disjunction, the conflict, the, the, the reality that is between this newfound understanding of my own dead story and this one mana narrative, I can create of the needed open for conversation to happen. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Rolf Nolasco. He's Reuben P. Job Professor of Spiritual Formation and Pastoral Theology at Garrett Evangelical Theological Seminary in Evanston, Illinois. He identifies as a queer person of color whose country of origin is the Philippines, and he works at the intersection of critical and liberative psychology, theology, spirituality, and affective neuroscience to address the complexity of the human condition and the potential for human flourishing. Today, we're talking about his recent book, Hearts Ablaze, Parables for the Queer Soul. We'll be back in just a moment. Things Not Seen is brought to you in part by Liturgical Press. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality. They've evolved to serve the changing needs of the Christian church, and they produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all leaders looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. Welcome back to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. If you're enjoying these conversations, please go to our website, Things Not Seen Radio. There you'll find 10 years of these sorts of interviews and conversations, all available for free for your listening pleasure. We're delighted today to be speaking with Professor Rolf Nolasco. He's Reuben P. Job Professor of Spiritual Formation and Pastoral Theology at Garrett Evangelical Theological Seminary in Evanston, Illinois. Today we're talking about his recent book, Hearts Ablaze, Parables for the Queer Soul. Well, before the break, you mentioned and really brought into your answer to my last couple of questions, your role as a therapist. And you in, in sort of discussing how you would be addressing someone who was very committed to a one-size-fits-all 
reading of biblical texts and particularly biblical parables, you said that one of the things that you would do in that conversation with that person would be to invite them to notice the fact that they were feeling afraid and unsettled. What I really liked about that answer is it drew on what you were saying earlier in our conversation about embodiment. Notice the fact that you're feeling fear and then ask what you're going to do with that rather than simply being governed by that. And I heard in that a real echo of Jesus's admonition to us, be not afraid, be not afraid. And so that really opens us up now to begin to dive into some of the actual things that Jesus is reported to have said in the Gospels. And so you chose to look at these stories, the parables. And so, for example, the parable of the mustard seed, the parable of the good sower, and to read them, but then also to reread them with a particular attention to queer audiences and the experience of embodied queerness. Now, as I'm saying all this, I want to, first of all, say these are my words, not yours. So let me pause here and just ask, as I've begun to describe your project to you, does it seem familiar or am I missing something and would you restate it? It's all good, David. I think that that really captures what I was trying to do when I was writing this book. And so if we're thinking about that, then you are specifically expecting that a primary audience for this book is going to be people who have felt their own sort of fear and who have felt their own sort of threat and their own sort of embodiment. And at various points, you're inviting them to name that, but also inviting them to imagine, and there's one point where you say this explicitly, a kind of world of otherwise. And I wonder if you can talk about that dynamic. So how is it that, that a reader could both own and name, I have felt afraid, I have felt threatened, but also then to invite them to this almost prophetic shift to say, but there's a world of otherwise out there, a world that you haven't experienced yet. Talk to me about that dynamic and how you think about the kind of imagined reader that you're writing to. Talking about queer life has always been a source of deep pain and trauma for a lot of queer folks. And so I start with that reality, owning that, naming it, acknowledging that's there. Because that's important in engaging the word and engaging the living word. And I think the invitation to come as you are has always been what has guided me to approach the scripture differently. So I hear the music just as I am when I was growing up in the Methodist church and how that really, in some ways, was um, a music that encouraged me to come as I am with all my pain and trauma and hopes and dreams, guilt and anger and shame, you name it, all the emotions. So it's important for anyone to recognize that's there, that that is really human to have those feelings. But also knowing that within that morass of emotions, we are held by another other, as James Allison would say. God who has preceded us, who delights in us, and can actually hold those emotions for us. So we are not afraid to enter into a conversation with the word and the word. So acknowledging that that's there is important. So that when we read the story, the scripture, We know that we come 
as subjective beings with all these experiences and worldviews and thought, we, we, we carry all that in reading into the text that we're studying. And so, so there is already in some way, almost like a, not a conflation, but a, a meeting of my world and the world of the scripture. But there is another dimension that I think is always present there. And it's God's presence in almost like creatively using my own experience, using what's in the scripture and creatively making something new out of that. And so there is openness within openness to what the scripture is saying and openness to what God is in some way, mixing together, creating together for something new to happen. And that has been, I think, my approach to this text. I really love that image of creative openness, and I, I want to dig into that a little bit more. But on the way to that, as I was listening to your answer, I was suddenly reminded, I, I became aware, the question that I asked you initially towards that answer was not expansive enough. And let me explain what I mean, because I kind of asked you how you engaged your imagined reader, and then you said, I, I really try and deal with the specificity of, of queer experience. I'm paraphrasing your response. And that suddenly made me realize you didn't just write from your imagination in this book, but you actually received a grant to interview people who identified as queer in various ways who are within the United Methodist Church context who have been particularly abused, I'm, that's my word, perhaps not yours, by recent processes in the church. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit to my listeners about engaging these voices, gathering these voices, and the way in which these voices become part of the story that you're telling in Hearts Ablaze. I've interviewed nine really out to Virgin, and it was important for me to interview queer persons of color and to center their voices, because we usually are on the background if at all. And so I was very intentional and, and, and thankful to the Louisville Institute for giving me the funding to do this work. But the stories that I've heard resonate with my own story, but also it's very unique in some ways. And so when I started talking to my interviewees, I suddenly realized how we share this experience together, but also appreciate how each of their journey actually was also very special and profound. And I wanted to also put that in the book. And I was so moved by it because there was one interview who said to me during the interview, I have never had a chance to actually tell my story. My whole, not maybe not, not the whole story, but really significant points in this life. That was his first opportunity. And, and that really sat me because because these stories need to be told. And I think that also in some ways indicates the fact that when we talk about queer issues, we talk about issues and not the persons, concrete individuals who are actually experiencing some of these issues. And so I wanted to really profile and center their stories because it's about time that we tell our story, the way we want our stories to be told. To not have an agenda other than to be in those spaces where we tell our stories. 
If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Dr. Rolf Nolasco. He's Reuben P. Job, Professor of Spiritual Formation and Pastoral Theology at Garrett Evangelical Theological Seminary in Evanston, Illinois. Today we're talking about his recent book, Hearts Ablaze, Parables for the Queer Soul. I really like how you phrased that. You wanted specifically to center the voices of queer persons in the church and the experience of queer Christians. And there are two moves that you make in your book, Hearts Ablaze, that I think are really helpful for readers and listeners to understand with a way of recentering here. And the first piece is, and this happens later in the book, you basically say, or I believe you're quoting one of one of these interviewees who says, my baptism is not deficient. My baptism is the same baptism as any straight presenting or heteronormative Christian that's out there. So I wonder if you can talk about this as a starting point, the notion that sort of baptism is a universal concept. There, there's not like a first class and a second class baptism. Can you speak to that? Of course. I think the baptism is um, such a symbolic sacrament that really, in some ways, indicates and proclaims the universality of God's love. Unfortunately, when the church took hold of this beautiful act of grace, they turned it into a theory, right, or ritual. And that somehow only heterosexual beings can fully avail of this invitation, of this call to new lights. And my friend, who really explicitly made that uh, known in my interview and in the book, is actually countering that narrative that no one will question who he is in the sight of God. And that his baptism is as, as legitimate as the next person. That he's living into God's call upon his life. And his calling, his baptism is as sacred as anyone else. And he stands on that foundation, on that promise, on that commitment, that he is God's beloved player, that his baptism is totally legit. I will just say that was a moment in the book that was revolutionary for me. I literally set the book down and I had to sit for several minutes and think about that. And to think about my own complicity in sort of participating in a kind of tiered baptism narrative where some baptisms were better than others and what it would be like to approach all people who claim the mantle of Christian with a universality of baptism. I think that it's a wonderful, and I'm going to use this word again, revolutionary rearrangement of some of the expectations that I have inherited by dint of some of the stories that I've lived into. And this really pushes me to then ask a second part of this question. There is a kind of story, particularly in conservative Christianity, that if LGBTQIA persons are to be understood at all, they're best to be understood as deficient heterosexuals that exist only to be recycled into a kind of heterosexual normativity. And in place of that narrative, and you've begun to touch on it here, you give a counter-narrative of queer joy. And I wonder if you could talk about the dynamic of rethinking that narrative of recycling and instead claiming this notion of queer joy. The narrative of recycling is actually the narrative of heterosexism and patriarchy, particularly of what heterosexism and patriarchy. That's the gospel that a heterosexist world pays homage. And our presence in this space 
challenges and problems that narrative. And so they're doing the best that they can to shame us. But queer joy is always there. Sometimes, exuberantly, sometimes you can even, you cannot even hear the joy that is within us. But it's there. And I think that queer joy comes from uh, this innate felt sense experience that we, that I am God's beloved. And that there is no, and, and, and I go by, I think, I'm not sure if it's Romans 8.28, and, and I'm not sure if I'm, not Romans 8.28, but, but, but neither is life nor death. Neither the gospel, white heterosexist patriarchal world, nor beliefs of the colonized world will sever this track and that lens experience God's expansive light. And I think that is a source of joy, that inner witness that we are God's beloved, but the joy also comes from being with other persons who have struggled so that we can then be as free as we can be now. Communities and even allies who supported us all the way through my own family who never questioned who I am. I grew in a very traditional Filipino family, but I never felt being ashamed or my family being ashamed of me. I've always been encouraged. And that is also a source of queer joy. There are moments in our lives where queer joy is present. Sometimes the trauma is so huge, we cannot see it, we cannot experience it, we can't even touch it. But that doesn't mean that it's not there, it's not available. And so part of the challenge then would be to awaken to the fact that the joy is always there within, that the joy is everywhere, and that we need to lean into pockets of joy, moments of joy, even big moments of joy, because that's really necessary for our survival. I think my approach to this book is, is not an apology. It's almost not in defense of who I am. My approach to this book is here we are. As we are, and we are fabulously queer beloved of God. I so appreciate that answer. And it leads me now to ask a kind of follow-on question, because we talked about kind of two poles, the notion of kind of heteronormative patriarchal Christianity, that queer persons exist only as deficient heterosexuals that need to be recycled. And then you give the opposite pole of here we are in queer joy, and we are beloved of God. But there's a point in between those two poles that I really want you to speak to. And I'm going to present you two different kind of story readings of Jesus. Jesus, the straight shepherd who welcomes queer sheep, or Jesus, the queer shepherd who welcomes all sheep. Help me understand where you're planting your flag. That's actually in chapter 10, my discussion of that red flies. I think it's cries, uh, you know, the visible expression of who God is, is queer all the way. And God's kingdom God's them actually, God's, God's them is huge with us for everyone. That we do have rooms for everyone. And I think my deepest desire is that I would be a part of this community of queer folks who are inviting and announcing this new world to everyone, not just for my queer community. I think that is, and I certainly believe in this, part of God's call for queer 
I mean, Brahman's fault is to be that bitch, to be that conduit, to be that mouthpiece, to be a welcoming community for everyone to come and be a part of this God's banquet that is available for us. The great lives being the shepherds for all. That's where I stand on that issue. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Dr. Ralph Nolasco. He's Reuben P. Job Professor of Spiritual Formation and Pastoral Theology at Garrett Evangelical Theological Seminary in Evanston, Illinois. He identifies as a queer person of color whose country of origin is the Philippines. And Dr. Nolasco works at the intersection of critical and liberative psychology, theology, spirituality, and affective neuroscience to address the complexity of the human condition and the potential for human flourishing. He's the author of The Contemplative Counselor, A Way of Being, Compassionate Presence, A Radical Response to Human Sufferings, and God's Beloved Queer. He lives in Evanston, Illinois. Today, we're talking about his recent book, Hearts Ablaze, Parables for the Queer Soul. We'll be back in just a moment. Welcome back to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we bring you a rich conversation about culture and faith. If you're enjoying these conversations, please go to our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. There you'll find 10 years of these sorts of interviews and conversations, all available for free for your listening pleasure. We're speaking today with Dr. Rolf Nolasco. He's Reuben P. Job Professor of Spiritual Formation and Pastoral Theology at Garrett Evangelical Theological Seminary in Evanston, Illinois. Today we're talking about his recent book, Hearts Ablaze, Parables for the Queer Soul. Well, I realize that throughout this conversation, we've been talking about the fact that this is a book about parables, but we really haven't dug into the parables yet. And so I want to now take this time and begin to dig into some of the rich rereadings that you give to these stories from the Gospels. And the place that I want to start is the parable of the mustard seed. Now, I will admit that I have not thought about this parable much except on its most kind of surface terms. And some things that I gained from your rereading of it is a mustard seed is small, but it's not the smallest of seeds. But when it hits the ground, it starts germinating immediately. And it's not a domesticated plant. We're talking about something that thrives in the wild. And so I really, this is where I want to ask you to begin to wax about this. Talk to me about immediate germination and thriving in the wild. And let me start by saying that really is a reflection of queer realities. We're everywhere, right? No one, no force, nothing can contain us. We're just everywhere. And that's a good thing because we give life, right? We provide another dimension to living one's life. And so we're like really the, the mustard seed that, that grows everywhere, not appreciate it by burns sometimes, they're floridly or even literally, but we're everywhere and we will continue to be everywhere. I think that's a short and a short a response to that question. And now when we grow, and, and this is probably something that is worth reflecting on is, is when we're nurtured, when we, when people around us support our flourishing, we become this big shrub that can actually house, take care, Nurture, educate, we're in all of these professions as well. But given the right condition, we could do amazing things. We could do amazingly queer things that really reflect God's own activity in the world. 
This is one of the things that I think really struck me about your rereading of that parable of the mustard seed is you talk about this. You say, when the mustard plant begins to flourish, it has big branches. And you say the parable points out that it becomes homes for other creatures, that, that it, it becomes a shelter for the birds and it becomes nourishment for animals. And so this is really kind of pulling on this thing that we've touched on earlier, that we're not talking about something that's just individualized. We're not just talking about individual flourishing, but the care of a human soul, particularly a queer human soul in its wonderful, extraordinary variety, allows for not just the flourishing of that soul, but it begins to pay dividends to the community. Now, these are my words, not yours. As I'm saying this, does this sound right, or would you say it in a different way? Definitely, it resonates deeply, David, because I think that's part of God's intention for us is and I use the word, we're icons, we're God's beloved icons. We point people towards God, not to ourselves, not to our thing, even though those are real and we're still healing from it, but we're pointing to another reality, that somehow our presence is already in some ways a reflection of what is to come, in that we are free and creative and we can provide shelter to everyone. We, we don't really want to replicate what we've experienced from a heterosexist patriarchal world. Part of, I think, our presence is to totally deconstruct that into an open opening. And I think that is just part of God's queer calling. So what I love about what you just said, I heard you queering the narrative that we talked about earlier, and let me explain what I mean. So we talked about this narrative that oftentimes comes in conservative Christianity, that queer persons exist only to be recycled into heterosexual normativity. But what I'm hearing you saying is a reversal of that, a beautiful world turned upside down where these threats and traumas and destructions that queer bodies have engaged with in trying to live in the world, the purpose of queerness in Christ is to recycle those narratives into sheltering love and into the availability of nourishment and hospitality for others. Now, I'm running off the script of your book here. I'm, I'm trying something new. As I say that, does that feel right? Does that sound right? Or would you attenuate it in some way? Probably not recycling. I don't think that God is in business of recycling. I think God is perhaps retrieving what has already been there that is so is good. And so the people somehow have taken that marked us back. And so our presence really is almost like God pointing to the world. This is part of my creation. They've gone through a lot. And let me show you how I can use them for everyone's benefit. I think as weird folks sometimes we, and understandably so, because of the pain and trauma, we, we couldn't envision ourselves that way. And that's okay. That may require a lot of time revealing and reflections. Perhaps that may require us to step away from the church. That's okay too. Because I think we are under God's own time and that we all are in our different joinings. And it's okay to, to wake this one out. It's okay to say, I'm ready, because the invitation remains. I love that in part because of just the new stuff that we're playing with, but also this ties us back into some of the moves that you're making in your book, Hearts Ablaze, because... This is now the message that you're giving us in the chapter on the new wine in new wineskins versus new wine in old wineskins. And I love the rereading that you give of that. And I wonder if you can give a little pricey of that rereading for my listeners. What is in your 
interpretation, the takeaway of new wine in new wineskins versus new wine in old wineskins? Oh, let me see. And, and I'm going to answer that question through, I guess, what I am committed to do and I'm doing. I, the invitations that I've been getting, I'm very intentional in choosing which to accept. And, and by that, I mean, I want to spend the rest of my time having conversations around how we can flourish our community, how we can encourage each other. Because if I enter into spaces where I would end up debating and then getting harmed, being traumatized, i.e. the old white skin, that will not be a excuse of time and it's probably not psychologically healthy for me. And so I'm choosing to enter in spaces where I have to just simply be and really say my truth to people who would want to hear it. And the new wines, I'm fascinated by that because the new wine and the new wines, yeah, it's, there is this invitation that God is constantly renewing God's creation. That the new stuff of life are always available for us. We haven't really exhausted God's treasure and resources. And that it's just a matter of me ascending to the fact that I am a new wine that can be poured into a new wine skin, that we are being called to, be, to, to a renewal of faith. So that gives me hope. That gives me joy. That gives me enthusiasm. Because I know that there will be people who might need to hear some of what I'm trying to say in the book. I'm not sure if that makes sense, David, but, but that's how I'm now embodying what the article means for me completely. So let me say back to you what I've heard and also what I read. So my understanding of that chapter was when queerness, LGBT, LGBTQIA identity, comes into certain situations, it becomes a, a rupture to the structures that are inherited in those situations. The new wine bursts the old wineskins. And that, for me as a reader, was really sort of opened my eyes. And I was like, ah, it's not my job necessarily to go in and always maintain the old structures. So that's, in that sense, that's one of the takeaways that I got. But now in your answer, I'm hearing an added layer. And that is for the care, not only of the wineskins, but also for the preservation of the wine so that it might actually serve its purpose you need to pay attention to what vessels it's being transported into. And that's what I'm hearing in the kind of self-care that, and reflection that you're doing about where you are bringing your message. Now, now, when I'm making that leap from the chapter to the answer that you just gave, am I understanding the kind of dynamics that are at play there, or have I missed something? Well, thank you for pointing out uh, almost like uh, another reading of that particular chapter. But let me go back to the first point around the new white skin bursting the old white skin. When the old white skin, when the structure and the tradition is threatened by our presence, what usually happens in this space is we become the puddle. We are causing the rupture, right? Because the structure, the tradition is not willing to do its own work. And so the tendency for religious institutions and secular spaces is to blame us for the change that is occurring. And it's convenient for them to then drive us out and to not, and to really sever the connection because they really couldn't contain and admit the fact that they are the ones who are being invited to 
to become new wineskin. So that's one piece that I also would like to add onto this conversation. Um, the second piece that my answer, my answer to your first question, um, my first answer to your question really was meant to also encourage people, great folks too, that it's okay to pay attention to your own sense of safety and security. That it's okay for you to just bathe in this new why. And, and perhaps that is something that is needed for us to get the courage and the perseverance, the joy to live into this new reality. But thank you for both connecting what's in the book and my own reinterpretation or addition to that particular chapter, which just says a whole lot about how open-ended even some of these things are. And thank you for giving me trust in asking you these questions that are building on both our conversation and the words that you've written. And in that spirit, I'd like to invite now even another layer of rereading, because late in your book, in the concluding chapter, you write this, and I'm going to quote you. You say, this takes a lot of courage. The temptation to fall back to the familiar roles of victim and perpetrator that lock all of us in an ongoing spiral of sacred violence can feel irresistible and overwhelming at times. The challenge before us lies in reclaiming our divinized humanity and non-rivalrous desires that benefit not only us, but others as well. I want to invite you to read that passage that I just said to you in light of these two poles of kind of the world that is to come that we're all invited to and we're all invited to be transformed into versus the self-care that has really been at the heart of the last couple of exchanges that you and I have had in this conversation. To what extent are we called to be bold and courageous and to what extent are we called to be caring of that fragile part of ourselves? And how do we, as persons in this world called to be in the image of Christ, balance those two things? I recognize how deep the painting is for the correct humanity. And we carry that every day. But we have not been given permission to take time to heal. And so there's an exodus of great folks leaving the church because of the pain. And that's okay. In fact, that is needed for some people, for them to really for once, pay attention to their own sense of well-being. And that drive for healing, for care, is both a personal and a social commitment. And in that process, and I'm being mindful of Henry Lowen's wounded healer metaphor, out of that sense of woundedness, because we know what it's like to be pushed, to be discarded, to be recycled, to be dismissed, to be thrown away. Those experiences need healing, individual, relational, and personal, even societal. And we can use that as a bottle for all the pain or some of the pain that people in the world are experiencing. And for the balance, I'm not quite sure about the balance. I think, I think when you're ready, to share this knowing, to partake of this experience, to be to be a host for this banquet that God has prepared 
um, to be a good Samaritan when you're ready. I mean, these are all parables that are um, in the book. When you're ready, then be it and do it. Because I am not alone. You are not alone. We are not alone. But it's important, I think, to pay attention at this time where I'm at with this issue. It's important for us to take care of our own sense of wellness. So we can then be in a place where we can be good Samaritans. We can be wise. We can be like the queer Christ for other people. In the spirit of what you have said earlier in our conversation, when you are feeling the pain, when you're feeling the trauma, when you're feeling the fear, have a space to name that fear and to name it honestly. I'm feeling afraid. I'm feeling traumatized. And to be able to move towards care and healing when that naming occurs. But then also there are going to be moments coming out of that care of self and that naming of that situation where you're also going to see possibility and to have the boldness to live towards that possibility, but always checking in with yourself to say, how am I doing and do I have the strength for this journey? As I say that to you, this is a very individualized, but also very kind of community reading of self-care. How does that sound to you? And would you say it in a different way? I think. I think self-care is never, is never private. It's deeply personal, but it's never private because, again, we are embedded in, in, in social relationships. And uh, it's okay to, I think, you know, as human agents to pay attention to our lived experience, knowing that we are not alone in that process. And so the communal care that is there that will be there and our own intentionality to do our own personal work is critical in this process of releasing ourselves to become more the dealers of oil. And, and we haven't really touched on this piece today, but I want to bring how perhaps a life's contemplation may assist us in both naming, acknowledging our pain, but also not being succumbed by it. Because in recognizing and in, in naming that, there's also an invitation, an innate source that will enable us to make use of, to transcend some of our experiences so we can then become bombs for the world. I, I wonder if you are willing, how has your own spiritual experience, your own walk with Christ, been shaped and changed by the process of writing this book and having it come out into the world? I think it's really, it's the source. It was the source, continues to be the source for me. And I'm, thank you for, for listening on because I am a perennial contemplative student. And I'm naturally introverted as well. So that way of spirituality, I know it's not for everyone. That way of really relating, accessing, being with God is very natural to me because I'm naturally introverted. And so in my writings, not only this book, but in my other books, I know that actually was the very domain that I was, that I was living out of when I was writing my books. It allowed me to pay attention to my reactions when I write. It allowed me to take a moment to breathe for when I am in pain and suffering. It allowed me and continues to allow me to imagine new ways of saying things, of writing things, 
because of that space, that liminal space, that contemplation really as a gift brings into my life. Without that, I don't think that I'd be, I'd be a good teacher. I don't think that I'd be able to write his books. I don't think that I could be an activist here. It's really the very backbone of my existence. All of what I have been able to do, I believe came out on this learning how to be confident in knowing that I am enough, that God continues and is with me. And so I dare not be afraid to venture into new things. And contemplation is a place that I can get into, live into, so I can remain faithful to God's call on my life. Well, Professor Ralph Nolasco, I just want to say again, reading your book, Hearts Ablaze, was a profound experience for me. And this conversation, similarly, has been a profound experience. I so appreciate your trust as I've asked you these questions and tried to bring together some of the pieces that I discovered in your book and the generosity that you've given me in your answers. I want to say again, also, you you mentioned that this came from a very personal place writing this book. I want to thank you on behalf of readers for taking the time and the courage to create this work, but also thank you so much for taking the time to talk about it with me and my listeners today. Thank you, David, for this gracious invitation to not only talk about the book, but also to share with you my story. Thank you for curating a space where another way of being from a representative caller can be told. And I hope that your listeners will use this as a bread to their own point. I would encourage you to pick up the book if you can. It's available on Amazon.com and everywhere else. But I'm just so gracious that I've been given the chance to write something that is deeply personal, which I would be encouraged to admit. To my queer siblings, you may not feel this yet, and it's okay. Oh, you're already embracing this. Uh, to all of my queer siblings, know that you and I, we all are. God's barely, queerly beloved, queer. We've been speaking today with Rolf Nolasco. He's Reuben P. Job Professor of Spiritual Formation and Pastoral Theology at Garrett Evangelical Theological Seminary in Evanston, Illinois. He identifies as a queer person of color whose country of origin is the Philippines, and he works at the intersection of critical and liberative psychology, theology, spirituality, and affective neuroscience to address the complexity of the human condition and the potential for human flourishing. We've been speaking today about his recent book, Hearts Ablaze, Parables for the Queer Soul. Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media, LLC. We're distributed nationally by PRX, the public radio exchange. Today's show was recorded at the William Adams Studios in beautiful Hyde Park here on the south side of Chicago, Illinois. Our theme music is composed by Gene Kija. Our show is made possible in part by the generosity of supporters on Patreon. You can find out how to help us create great programs by going to patreon.com slash notseenradio. You can follow us on Twitter at notseenradio. Visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and find out more about our guests. That's facebook.com slash thingsnotseenradio. 
And you can sign up for the free podcast, listen to old shows, send us an email, and find out more about our guests if you visit us on the web at thingsnotseenradio.com. I'm David Dalt, and we'll be back next week with more conversations about culture and faith. Please join us.